0: There is not a square inch in the world domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every year I keep track of the things that I've been reading, and I, I look back and say, what have I learned? What were some of my favorite books from this last year? And this year, when I looked at my reading, I realized that I I kind of read in these categories of hope and fear, which was kind of strange. I don't know that I've ever done that before, but mostly fear. I I realized that there was an entire section of the books that I read this year that had something to be afraid of. Not just a thriller that, you know, says, hey, somebody might detonate a nuclear bomb somewhere in the world. But I I realized when I looked at it that early in the year, I, I read... These ideas of, look at how the world is getting better. Look at all of these data points that say extreme poverty is ending and peace is coming. And look at how great the world is. And then the rest of the year, I ended up reading books on weather disasters, both past and present flooding around the world. I ended up reading uh, books on infectious diseases and how they leap from animals to humans. And I don't recommend that book makes it kind of hard to be around uh, animals again. Uh, but I, I, I was reading books on tragedies. I was reading books on crime. I was reading books on things that people can do. And I realized that that year was kind of a year spent reading on hope and fear. And, and the things that we should be hopeful for and excited about and look at how, th- how great things are going. But then other books on, hey, look at how out of control we are. Look at what might happen. You should be afraid. Run away. And I was thinking of those books this week. And that, that tension that you and I find ourselves in, that we, we want to be hopeful, but then there's also things that make us angry and that make us scared and that make us go, what is the future going to hold? What is 2020 or the 2020s going to hold? And, and we end up going, why should I be hopeful? Why should I be afraid? And then we come to church. There's that part of us. Then we come to church where we're supposed to say, oh, Like God is sovereign, so that means everything is gonna be good and everything's gonna be okay. And so if we're I, I wonder if we're honest, if we kind of put on this veneer of God's sovereignty means that I'm supposed to be hopeful, but when I'm at home, I'm honestly I'm more afraid than anything. Like the world feels out of control, and I'm not sure how to connect what we talk about on Sunday at church with the rest of my life and with the news that I look at and the newspapers that I read or the the channels that I watch? How do I connect what we talk about on Sundays with the hope and fear that I'm constantly bombarded with during the week? We're starting a new series starting today in the book of Colossians. And Colossians says that Jesus is supreme over all. The graphic that you just saw shows Jesus says supreme over the world. But Colossians is going to say, yes, Jesus is supreme over the universe, but he's also supreme over history, and he's supreme over people, and he's supreme over your hearts. And he's supreme over your family, and he's supreme over your work, and he's supreme in all of these different areas. And so now as we begin walking through the book of Colossians together, I want to see how does this idea that Jesus is supreme connect with that daily tension we live with of hope and fear? How does does that connect with hope and fear that that we have to confront? So go ahead and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to today be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If your arms are full, you can follow along on the screen with us. Colossians chapter 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our father. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ, Jesus, and of the love that you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel, that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And who also told us of your love in the Spirit for this reason. Since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, as we open your word, we pray that you would give us your spirit. We pray that that you would give us your spirit so that we can understand what your will is. And so that our lives can bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. What this passage shows us is that Jesus is supreme over the growth of his gospel and of his people. That Jesus is supreme over the growth of his gospel and his people. And what I want to show you in these verses is that two ways that we live if this is actually true. Two ways that we live if Jesus truly is supreme over the growth of his gospel and his people. Verses 3-8 to tell us, recognize God's work and thank him. Recognize God's work and thank him. What Paul does, Paul and Timothy, as they write this letter, is to a group of Christians in the city of Colossae. It's kind of a second-rate city at this point. It's not a major city like some of the other towns that Paul writes to. But he has a a friend, Epaphras, who is ministering there. And And Epaphras is finding that people are either attracted to just pleasing God with the Jewish law Or they're attracted to secret things that separate the world from God and say, God doesn't care about this world. God doesn't care about this world. Our whole goal is to get out of our bodies and go to be with God someday. And so forget anything having to do with this world. Those those are the two things that they're attracted to. And what Paul is calling them to is you actually need to see that God is actually at work in the world. You need to actually recognize that this world is not estranged from God as if God does not care and we need to shed it so that we can somehow please God. Instead, we actually have to recognize that God is at work and begin to cultivate thankful hearts. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then he walks through because of your faith, because of the love that you have for one another. And those two things come from hope. Paul has already, in other letters, said that faith, hope, and love are uh, are this epitome of the Christian life. This faith, hope, and love. And here in these verses, he says, Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for God's people, that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Paul is saying, when I look at you guys, I see faith and love that come from hope. The gospel is growing in you, and I am recognizing that God is doing something. It's his doing. Jesus is supreme, and it just doesn't happen that you're growing. But because you are growing and becoming godly parents, I recognize that that's something that God is doing. Because I see that you pour out your love for the saints in the church, I know that that is God's doing. The gospel is at work in you. And then he turns and says, it's come, this gospel has come to you. But in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. This Paul is saying, guys, what God is doing in your church, he's actually doing around the world. You may not know it. Tucked away there in Colossae in this little city. You don't know what's happening in Rome, but just know there's pockets of Christian growth also happening in Rome. Just just know that that there's pockets of growth that are happening in Palestine, in and around Jerusalem It's happening in Antioch. It's happening as the apostles are spreading out across Persia towards India. It's happening as the apostles head down into Egypt and Ethiopia. The the gospel actually is God doing work wherever it goes. And so one of the things we have to notice is that it's the gospel of God that does the work. And it's so tempting for us to go, what are we called to do? And we have this list of things that are supposed to please God and Paul is saying, guys, when the gospel goes out, the gospel does work. When you when you speak the truth about God changing your life through the power of the gospel, that's a seed planted that you don't get to control and you don't get to drive. And so you can be confident that that is working and growing and changing things. And then so we have to have eyes to see that God is actually at work in these things. We actually have to begin to have the kind of eyes to see and say, "Look at this love that's happening in this family, in this church. Look at these people pouring out their lives, and recognize this is God expressing His supreme control and His power and His glory in these places." And so then our posture is to be, "God did this. Thank you. God did this. Thank you." I've been. Uh, I told my kids a story. I told my kids a story recently that researchers for a long time have been curious about languages that don't include the, the word blue. If you look back at Homer's Iliad, there's no, they don't describe the sea as blue. They describe it as like wine dark, which is more like a purple color is what you would describe it as. And so for a long time, researchers have thought, why like there are languages that don't use the word blue. How, why would that be and how does that change things? So my kids think it's really funny and they're like, what if we forgot the word blue? Um, If we didn't have that word, what changes? Well, some researchers have recently gone down to uh, Namibia, and they took a tribe that has many, many words for green, and they have no word for blue. And they showed them a picture with 11 squares of green and one square of blue. And they asked them, what do you see? What do you see? And they found that these guys, that the people in this tribe who have no word for blue, would say that I see a circle of green squares. And they would, they would kind of say, but, but what if one of them is a different color? Can you notice that one of them is slightly different? Do you see that there's something different going on here? And they would they would take a long time, be really, really patient, and most of the time be wrong. They couldn't tell the difference between a blue square and a green square because they have no language for, hey, there is something that's, this this shade is here. But then, if they took a circle, and I've seen these circles. I can easily tell the blue. Then they took a circle and they did... 13 different, or I'm sorry, they did 11 shades of green, exactly the same, and then did one slightly different green shade, they were able to instantly see what the green square is. I can't tell. I thought it was on the bottom left, and it turns out it was the top right. I can't tell a difference between the green shades with it. They could tell instantly, and I can see the blue that they can't see, and so my kids are like, wow, if you don't have language for it, maybe you can't see it. And the reason that I'm telling you this story about this color blue and these people's inability to see blue because they have no language for it is that what is so often the case for us is we have no language for God being supreme in the world and shepherding and caring for the world that we often just don't recognize God's work and we don't thank him for his work and we look at it and say, look what I did. Like these people who don't have any language for blue that can't see it, we often have no language for look at what God is doing. And so we don't recognize it and we don't thank him. And the call in this passage is like Paul is to look at the world and say, look, this is Jesus' work as he is expressing his supremacy over the growth of his gospel and his people. We have to begin to have eyes to see that Jesus is supreme so that we can celebrate it and so that we can thank him. So that as our kids are growing, we can see it and we can thank God that he's doing it and not credit it to how great our own parenting it is. As we look at one another and we see love expressed in the body of Christ, we can begin to recognize this is God growing in you. And I'm going to be thankful for that. This is God growing in you. And I'm going to be thankful for that. We have to begin to get this language. Look, Jesus is supreme. And so anywhere we see good happening, Jesus is at work. And so we thank him. But not only does Paul call us to recognize God's work and thank him. The second way that we begin to live that Jesus really is supreme in this way is verses 9 through 14 encourage us to ask God to do more. If we really begin to recognize this is God's work, that these good things as the gospel is bearing fruit in me and in my family and in my block and in my church, if we begin to notice that God is at work around the world, then the, the the response should be Jesus is supreme. God, can you do more? Can you do more of this? So we begin to lean in. What I notice is verse 9. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God. When I, when I look at the Bible and I, I see the word pray, if you look at a concordance that lists every use of the word prayer, almost every one of them is either used in the context of or as a synonym for asking. The often we go, what am I supposed to pray for? How do I how am I supposed to pray? What does it mean to pray? Paul says here, I have not stopped praying for you. I'm continually asking. That if Jesus is actually supreme, the proper response is, Jesus, can you be can you be at work? That's not actually an inferior or like lower standard of Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality is a going to God and saying, God, can you do more of what you've been doing? God, can you do more of what you have been doing in my life and in my heart? God, can you give wisdom to my wife and to my kids? Can you give wisdom to my friends who need to hear it? Can you give the spirit to my friends who need to hear and respond to the good news of the gospel? True Christian spirituality is this asking God to do more of what he specializes in. And then Paul, he's asking, and what does he ask for? He says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Everything else he's going to say in verses 9 through 14 comes up underneath that. Paul says the essence of of what you need is actually wisdom. What you need is you need wisdom because that's going to be the thing, and then he begins listing wisdom. Knowledge of God's will is going to be the thing that helps you walk worthily of the calling that you've received. Wisdom is going to be the thing that helps you bear fruit in every good work. Wisdom is going to be the thing that helps you increase in the knowledge of God. It's going to strengthen you with endurance. Wisdom is going to be the thing that gives you joy and thankfulness. Wisdom is going to be wisdom, spiritual wisdom, not the wisdom of the world is going to be the thing that gives us the things that we need and the things that we want. I don't know about you but if I read that list, Walking worthily of the calling, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with endurance, being filled with joy, being able to be thankful. Those are the things that I want for my life. Those are the things that I want for my wife. Those are the things that I want for my kids. Those are the things that I want for you guys. And how are those things going to happen? It's going to happen as Jesus, who is supreme over the gospel and his people, gives wisdom and knowledge of his will. And so this is what we want in life, and God is going to have to be the one to do it. I'm not on my own going to be able to bear fruit. I'm not on my own going to be able to increase in the knowledge of God. I'm not on my own going to be able to be strengthened with endurance. I'm not on my own going to be filled with joy and thankfulness. I'm not on my own going to be able to be filled with joy and thankfulness. This passage says that God is going to have to be the one to do it. And isn't that the story of the Bible? When we look in the Bible, we see that it wasn't some strategy that Moses had that parted the Red Sea. It wasn't something inherent in a staff that he held over his head. It was the fact that God parted the Red Sea and Moses was standing there quite honestly, doing something that makes no sense and does no good, because God is going to have to be the one to do it. That when the, the walls around Jericho fall, it's because God causes the walls around Jericho to fall. There's nothing inherent in trumpets and marching around a city that's going to do it. The story of the Bible is the story of God who is actually doing the work. God is the one who does the work, transforming and changing. And so the call to us is will we ask God to transform ourselves? Are we going to say, Jesus, you are supreme over your, of the growth of your gospel and of your people, and so that means I need you to give me the knowledge of your will. I need you to, I need you to give my family the knowledge of your will, not strategies. God, I need you to pour out your spirit on my block so that they can hear and respond to the gospel as I join you here. Jesus, can you give wisdom to your church so that your church can may walk worthily of the calling that we've received. Bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened to endure, being filled with joy so we can be thankful. And so will, will we begin to have the eyes to see God is at work. We're going to thank him that we see that and then we're going to ask him to do more. But how does this happen? I don't know about you, but my own temptation is to credit progress to my own strategy and my own ability. If something good happens, it's because I made it happen. I did it. So how does this actually happen? Is it How, do, how does this actually happen? Verses 12 and 13 tell us. Giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. It is the Father who qualifies us to be a part of this. Jesus is supreme over the growth of the gospel and of his people because he's the one that qualifies us to share in this inheritance. He is the one that has rescued us from the dominion, from the power, from the control and the influence of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. This passage says that if we're going to recognize God's work, if we're going to thank him, if we're going to ask God to do more, it's going to be God who makes this happen in us. He qualifies, he rescues, he brings us into. If you're here and you go, how, what do you mean? How, how does this happen? Lay this out for me, step by step. What are you talking about, Joe? This passage as when it talks about He has qualified you, He has rescued, He has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. The Bible says that God brings His enemies into His kingdom through His Son who poured out His life for us on the cross. The story of the Bible is the story that God made the world and that we weren't under the dominion of darkness. We weren't under the power of, a, of, the, uh, of Satan. Instead, we lived in a perfect world. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world. And that God put Adam and Eve in it and said they are very good. But Adam and Eve and you and I and everybody after them has said, No, God, we will not listen to you. We will not follow you. We will not. We will not live your way. We will not recognize. We will not thank. And we will not ask for more. So the the story of the Bible is actually God himself. This is what this passage is saying. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption because Jesus lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should die. And raised, was raised again so that all who turn away from sin and trust in Christ can know that they actually have an inheritance. And that hope can drive faith and love that changes things. Gives us eyes to see God at work and hearts that say, God, do it again. Do more of this. God, do more of this. Jesus is the grounds, the means. Jesus is the one that is supreme, that invites us into his kingdom. And so if you're here today, whether young or old, you've been here once or you've been here many times, if you say, this is what I want, I want this kind of thing in me, I want to know that I have an inheritance, not based on what I have done, come and grab me at the end of the service. Grab somebody that brought you and say, how can I know for sure that this is actually mine, that this is true, and that I have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Son that God loves? So this passage says, Jesus is supreme over the growth of his gospel and his people. Jesus is supreme over the growth of his gospel and his people. And as we begin to be thankful, and as we begin to ask God to do more, what changes? What changes? As we look at our own lives, we can actually have confidence. We can actually have hope, not fear that 2020 is going to drag me farther down. But if God is actually the one that's supreme in these things, then that means nothing is going to happen in 2020 that is actually going to stop the growth of God's gospel in me. Because Jesus is supreme over 2020 and of everything that I'm facing. Jesus is the one that is pouring out his spirit and his wisdom in my life. As we look at 2020, we can go into it with confidence for our kids that there's nothing out there that's going to dra- that can drag them down if Jesus is supreme over the growth of his gospel and his people. There's nothing that's outside of his control. Instead of being fearful for our families, for our lives, for our church, for our community, for our country, for our world, Colossians says, no, we should be having eyes peeled to see where God is at work, to thank him for that, and then ask him to do more of it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are supreme over everything and that we can be confident in 2020. In Jesus' name, amen. There is not a square inch in the world domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine.